0: Episode 2, the English game on Netflix, how soccer transformed the British working class of the 1880s. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Pedro's List podcast, where I talk all things education, sometimes a bit about history, and other times a bit about sports and coaching. Today I want to get into the historical significance of The English Game, the Netflix multi-series production that is co-produced by Julian Fellows, the writer and producer of the incomparable Downton Abbey. I divide today's show into two segments. First I'll talk about the English Game series and what it all means. And then two, I want to get into the big revolution related to soccer in the 1870s and its repercussions to society. Okay, we are back. Segment one of today's show, the English Game series. What was it really all about? Look, I remember thinking while watching the English Game that whoever wrote this series looked to portray the 1880s Victorian era, but with a 2020 nuanced point of view. I call it the now nuance, or done by those who look at history, but with a presentist point of view. And it's the same kind of writing used in Downton Abbey, where we get sucked into the drama of both societies, rich and poor, but we do it in a today kind of neutral way, not taking sides for or against anyone. And I think it's, it's written this way, um, and it's to understand that both classes have a stake or a role to play in the culture. And I think, ultimately, it's because of Julian Fellow's influence, no doubt. Chris Porter, a critic um, writing in the web journal called The Conversation, says it best about Julian Fellows, quote, that he, Fellows, is known for focusing his attention on the stories of the privileged elite and the working class, and instead of employing villain plot devices, Fellows creates a world where there's a degree of mutual empathy and political ambivalence between the two groups, end of quote. And I think what Chris Porter is really talking about here is what I said earlier, that despite the subplots and the plots that make up the English game series, it all boils down to one story, which is how both groups, the rich and the poor, assert their role in society as co-claimants. For the working class, I see soccer as the way to do it. We mustn't forget that The working class made up over 70% of the population in the late Victorian era, but had no power, politically speaking, or in the socio-economic world. And the privileged elite had also a bunch of time off for sports and leisure, while the working class in Great Britain did not. So here, too, the leisure world belonged to the rich and elite. The elite had free time to go fishing, hunting, riding bikes, swimming, and much more. Soccer, too, was a sport for the upper class, even if the style played was of a rough-and-tumble type of soccer, as it's been called. The most formidable soccer team of the day was a team made up from the privileged elite, an amateur team made up of players who as youngsters attended the Eton College private prep boarding school. This team was called the Old Etonians. Now a side note. In England. Private secondary schools are called public schools, in which Eaton and others like Charterhouse, the Harrow School, and the Rugby School make up the list. But then things changed for the working class first saturdays became half working day which meant that sports and leisure could now be enjoyed by the working class and soccer became an easy pastime to enjoy given that it was free and you did not need to belong to a private club to be able to play the sport and then british industry like the cotton mills north of northern england began to support soccer teams made up of workers from these mills, to play in leagues all around England, which brought out the fans in the thousands. And wouldn't you know it, these industry-sponsored teams, made up of working-class players, lost to the Old Etonians each time they went up against each other. The Old Etonians were that formidable. But things changed again. First, one working-class team, the Darwin Mill town's team decided to import players from Scotland who were known to be ball, ball players or ball, or better ball players and also began to pay them. Spoiler alert, the Darwin team began to beat the Old Etonians and this is what the Netflix series drama gets into. Now for me, I was drawn to something else in the series and it comes from a very small scene and I'm talking about something brand new that was invented in 1887 which revolutionized soccer and this was that a new game playing strategy that Darwin employed um and this is how they beat the old etonians okay i want to get into this into the next segment so stick around Back, the final segment of today's um, episode two. So, what's the big deal about soccer strategy? I mean, after all, the Netflix series mentions this strategy in passing in a small scene and then builds no elaborate p- plot points around it. So, what's the big deal? The new strategy I'm talking about is the 2 3 5 player alignment formation, sometimes called the pyramid, and invented in the 1870s. Now, I'm not so sure that it was the Darwin team that actually invented this strategy, historically speaking. But at any rate, in the Netflix series, they are the ones that start using this strategy. The 2-3-5 strategy was designed to have five forwards playing up front, three midfielders, and finally two defensive backs. The old Etonians used the 1-1-8 strategy, which meant there was one defender, one midfielder, and then eight forwards. The old Etonian style was how they played soccer as youngsters in Eton in the mid-1860s and which was all about dribbling the ball, moving the ball forward in a pack of eight forwards towards the goal. It was almost like a block or a scrum of eight players pushing forward and getting everybody else out of the way. The old Etonians were also known to be hard tacklers and they didn't mind being very physical, going at your shins and which made them that much more powerful. And this is what the previous Darwin team and the other working class teams were up against and they lost constantly and it's because they also played the 118 strategy themselves. Now since Darwin team had already imported this Scottish players who liked to spread the field and pass the ball more, the 235 strategy became a seeming natural evolution, and the reason for them to get out of playing the 1-1-8 strategy. And this was that the 2-3-5 strategy was more balanced, and the players could get out of trouble by passing the ball around. And wouldn't you know it, the 2-3-5 strategy was what made the Darwin team actually score as many goals as the Old Etonians, and it became the soccer strategy being used all the way to the 1930s. I actually started to understand the usage of the strategy as an ironic education tool twist that was used by the working class back in the 1870s. The Darwin team and the other working class teams using the new strategy were not school-educated graduates, yet they nevertheless were able to use real strategic thinking to win their games, unlike the Old Etonians, the educated ones, but they used muscle and brawn while looking to overwhelm their opponents. I came to the conclusion that what Darwin and the other teams were doing is what learning theorists today call informal learning, something that is very important in the information and social media age today. In the book, Foundations of Learning and Instructional Design and Technology, edited by Richard West, the chapter written by Tim Boylow describes informal learning as, I quote, when learning occurs through self-initiated activity and resulting in the creation of new skills and knowledge, end of quote. And the point is that through informal learning, you are relying on learning that is social and is integrated in the life of the community. Formal learning, on the other hand, is the kind of learning that takes place in a school or class setting and that comes from a lecture. And one of the tenets of the British Industrial Revolution was the use of the apprenticeship system, which at its core is informal learning. Jane Humphreys, in her 2006 article, English Apprenticeship, A Neglected Factor in the First Industrial Revolution, reviews several facets of the apprenticeship system and reminds us that those workers being trained had once come from the agricultural world a generation before and through the use of the apprenticeships methodology were able to learn faster and at lower costs and, at becoming, and it ended up becoming essential to the industrial revolution. The point I'm making is that the industrial workers understood their economic power and which I think gave them lots of confidence through these informal learning apprenticeship teaching models, which they then took to the playing field. I remember reading the brilliant work of E.P. Thompson, The Making of the English Working Class, and I was struck by his idea of the working class consciousness. And then while uh, while watching the Netflix series, I thought about what I called confidence maybe was a class consciousness that ep thompson had written about i started to think about how these workers had come to soccer field come to the soccer field already possessing confidence and i began to see soccer as a cultural factor where the working class asserted their power it was not just the players or the teams it was the fans who came out in droves to watch their teams in the 2016 article In Culture Wars by Martin Cook, he argues that the Industrial Revolution shaped England, and England's sports and soccer are at the core of identity and place. The masses were brought together by industry, and it's industry that looms large in English soccer's soccer's formative years. Okay, so this is my take on the English game on Netflix and the history of soccer. I'd say the series is a fantastic resource for teachers who cover the British Victorian era, but it's also a great entertaining series. That's it, another episode of Pedro's List, so until next time...